she's one of the most remarkable women I've met because she's, she's absolutely brilliant. A couple of years ago, I interviewed her for an article for the journal. At the time, for various reasons, I wanted to emphasize the value of lifestyle advice. I say, do you give them lifestyle advice? And she, she's in her 70s, but she's a fierce woman. And she raised her hand and slapped it down hard on the table and went, of course, of course, you cannot treat without that. Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the field of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Ravenhill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. To put it bluntly, Peter Dedman is a legend in the field of Chinese medicine. Virtually anyone who has studied acupuncture for any length of time has poured through the beautifully formatted pages of the Manual of Acupuncture, one of his gifts to the profession, published more than 30 years ago. Had this epic text been all that Peter accomplished, he would still have international renown. But Peter has done so much more. 90 minutes is not enough to cover all the ground of Peter's achievements, but we are able to scratch deeper than just the surface in a number of topics, including exploring his earliest entrepreneurial activities 50 years ago of starting the world's first macrobiotic student restaurant on the campus of the same university he had recently been thrown out of, and founding a food cooperative that arose on the restaurant's successes and is still thriving today. When his passion for health led him to study Chinese medicine, Peter dove into what was the forefront of Chinese medicine migration into the West, mentoring under who would become his lifelong teacher and friend, the late Giovanni Macioccia. And after graduating, when Peter could not find any good literature in the field written in English, he naturally decided to launch the Journal of Chinese Medicine 41 years ago. Blending his passion for Chinese medicine and nutrition, Peter wrote Live Well, Live Long, another beautiful text exploring the wonderful Chinese tradition of nourishing life, known as Yangsheng. There's not much that Peter has not done or spearheaded, including his latest feats of starting the Chinese Medicine Forestry Trust to promote planetary health, co-creating a wellness app, and launching his own Qigong teaching series. And of course, his brilliant talent seems to have no limits. Peter is a seasoned musician who plays fiddle and toured in a band for many years. I hope you enjoy this episode of the unfolding of Peter Dedman's unwritten narrative, the fulfilling of one's life purpose. So to begin, Peter, I just want to thank you for coming on to the show, and it is an honor to sit down and talk with you. It's been probably close to a decade since, since I last saw you and we chatted, so it's good to have this opportunity to catch up. Well, thank you. And I thought we'd actually start maybe from a a little bit of a lighter place. You and I share something in common in that I would say would be yurts. You have a a love for yurts. I once nearly burnt a yurt down. (laughs) (laughs) Just thought we we would start with your bit about your yurts, if you don't mind talking about them. Well, yes, I can talk about it. So... um... Probably 20, 25 years ago, I went to a Qigong camp. 
uh, it's actually a camp that I then subsequently went to every year and did a lot of teaching out fabulous camp but this was the first time and I hadn't camped for a long time so I had a typical little um, nylon type of tent and I put it up in five minutes and was sitting there making myself a cup of tea. Meanwhile, this, this woman turned up with a, a car covered in sticks and sort of was really busy for a couple of hours. I wasn't paying that much attention to her. But then I, <laughs> I, I wandered out of my tent and I passed her and I saw this palace. But, you know, <laughs> um, it's an incredible palace and inside this palace, and it was a typical... British summer's day, damp, cool, if not cold, you know, and she was lying on sheepskins next to the, <laughs> next to this fabulous wood stove. Um, she brought a wood stove along. Yeah. And I thought, <laughs> I want one of them. I'm never, ever, <laughs> ever going to go camping in a nylon tent again. So I set about trying to find out how to make one. And it was really difficult. There was for some reason, there's very little information around. So I made my first yurt, which I, I loved doing. I mean, it's a very beautiful natural experience because I coppiced the wood, it's ash wood. Um, so I meant I picked all the wood myself. And then there's a mm. process, I won't go into detail. I'm a bit nerdish about yurts, but of kind of stripping the wood and bent, steaming and, and bending it and so on. Um, my first yurt was not great. I didn't really understand what I was doing. Um, so I decided to make another one. And that was much better. That's my year now. I have to be honest, though, I haven't used it for two or three years because it is a lot of work. It's heavy. It's heavy stuff. And as I get older, mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's between half a day and a day to load it all up in a car and drive off somewhere and unload it. And of course, when you have a yurt, you, you have to get all the furniture to go with it. You know, the wood stove, <laughs> the wood, and the carpets and the tables and the bookshelves. <laughs> anyway. That's I, a whole new twist on camping. <laughs> yeah, all I can is just say when, when I finally have my yurt up, the wood stove lit, because we always have wood stoves in yurts and the UK, so it's always damp. And I'm lying there, I just, I'm as happy as I ever am in my life, you know. <laughs> That's great. Now, you say you coppiced all the wood. Now, there are how many pieces of wood in a year? There are hundreds and hundreds, right? Yeah, I wouldn't know to count them. It's a job, you yeah. know, but it's a very nice job. You're out in the woods, you're looking, you're hunting for the perfect piece of wood. Um, it's lovely to be outside and to strip the wood and make a fire and do the steaming. It's really, really lovely craft, crafting. Mm -hmm. And then what sort of material do you cover, cover yours in? Is that a canvas? The, yeah, I buy the canvas. So that's a really skilled job. I mean, to sew gigantic pieces of very heavy canvas, I wouldn't touch that. So you make the frame, yeah. you measure it all, a bit like being measured for a seal, you know. Inside leg, outside leg, everything. Send all the measurements off, and then, you know, they send you the perfect cover. So. Great. So, do you have a yard? No. So I've, 
when uh, we first moved to the farm where we are, I I envisioned that I absolutely would get a yurt, and I even had a, a spot set out for it. And then my wife decided to get goats, and I thought the combination of goats and yurt wouldn't go too well. So I found a new spot for it. And uh, on numerous occasions, we were getting pretty close to getting one. But in the end, we've decided now is not the best time for it. We're, but I think one day I will have one. I love them. And when I was my near burning down story, I was, I was in Beijing doing some of my acupuncture rotations with a few colleagues. And we took a, a week-long trip to Mongolia. And driving through the countryside, we got to stay in family yurts the whole time we went. It was an amazing experience. Families would just welcome you into their homes or if they had a spare yurt. And uh, one night, the three of us were in our own yurt. And I think, I don't know which one of the three of us, but, but either we pulled the flap too close to the chimney pipe or we forgot to open it up. And anyway, there started to be a bit of burning, but fortunately... The yurt did not burn down, um, but it was it was a bit of a close call and a bit of a scary experience to think that we almost destroyed someone's yurt because uh, that's not something I would want to be responsible for. Uh, well, actually, if it, you know, if it filled with smoke, you might have destroyed yourselves too. Yes. Yeah. yeah but, it's dangerous. But it was a wonderful experience other than that part of it, but traveling through the Mongolian countryside and, and seeing all of those yurts and how they live how the, the people lived in such harmony with nature. It was really incredible. So shifting from that, that's uh, obviously probably not the main reason I wanted to have you on the show today. Uh, you have been what I would say is a pioneer in, in many, many aspects, many areas, but in particular in, in acupuncture and Chinese medicine. You started the Journal of Chinese Medicine how long ago was that? Was that 30 years ago? Well, it was, it was uh, 41 years ago. 41 years ago. Wow. Yeah. Yep. And no one was doing anything like that at the time. Is that correct? Look, you know, people may have heard this and it's, you know, it's not very exciting to hear old geezers say, oh, when I was young, it was like this, <laughs> like that. You know, I went to acupuncture school in 1975, and if I remember correctly, there were three, possibly four books in English, mm -hmm. total. There were, there were some in French, uh, obviously loads in Chinese, but at that time, none of us read or spoke Chinese, none of the people I studied with. So it was a desert, and it was a real struggle to get any reliable information. The books that did exist were not great caliber books, to be honest. Um, so knowledge was very, very hard won. Uh, my timing was lucky because <clears throat> in the last year of acupuncture school, I was taught by um, Giovanni Machacha, um, who had been to China for, it might've just been a month or three months. And also at that time, the lecture notes of Ted Kapchuk's, Ted Kapchuk's lectures. Ted, Ted studied in Macau, came back to America and started lecturing on Chinese medicine. Students made notes and as is the way of students, they, they pirated them and sent them all over the world. So had this big batch of notes from Ted, 
I had some information from Giovanni. And then for the first time, for me and my studies, Chinese medicine began to make sense. I felt I'd been completely lost in a, um, a thicket, a forest, a fog. Um, suddenly there was some clarity, some sunlight, and I was very excited by that. That's when I really, really became excited by Chinese medicine. So when I qualified, I realized that there was no information really in English available. And the obvious thing to do is to start a journal and get the people who did know a bit start writing articles. Yeah, that seems, so it was that seems my... obvious, Peter. I mean, yeah. I'm sure most people well, would have all... done the same. Oh, well, I, <laughs> before that, I'd, um, I'd set up a natural foods business. Yes. And what, because it was always a financial struggle, everything that we needed to do, we had to learn to do ourselves, everything. You know, we had to learn to build shells and we had to learn building and we had to learn baking, we had to learn cooking, and we had to learn writing and publishing leaflets, everything. So um, after a few years of that, it, you know, it was quite natural to look at, oh, this needs doing, I can do this, you know, just from the experience of just having had to do things. So I guess it was a kind of can-do attitude born of that previous experience. Um, and yeah, the journal was very homemade, for ages, I mean, we're going back to before computers. We used to, you know, really basic um, typesetting using sticky type. <laughs> it was just, you know, it's real bedroom activity. And then you, and then slowly, and, and you distribute it via mail post. Yeah. And how did you get? You know, how did you get uh, members for that or or sign up subscribers? Well, the Chinese medicine community was very small. So, you know, the word passed around. I mean, probably for years, we didn't, many years, didn't have more than 200 subscribers to it. And then slowly, you know, the profession took off. So, um, yeah. And how's that journal doing today? Um, it's, to be honest, publishing a journal is a real struggle. It's a labor of love. The two main problems, no difficulties, not problems. Um, if you if you work in Western medicine publishing and journal publishing, doctors and researchers have to publish. They're dying to get their material into journals. They fight for it. They even pay. Um, our profession, by and large, doesn't write. Um, so to get a steady supply of good uh, content is quite hard. Um, it's only three times a year, but the, you know, it's rich in content and, um, you know, we don't always publish, let's say, you know, sometimes we publish journals where perhaps one or two articles are not as great as other articles, but we do our best. And, you know, we've published over the years, we've published some fantastic stuff. That's one thing. I think the second thing is that by and large, the bulk of our profession is not very studious. Um, you know, a lot, I don't, maybe it's different in different countries. I'd say in the UK, quite a lot of practitioners, they go to school, 
They studied for three years and as far as they're concerned, that's it. They're probably not going to do much more studying. They may um, go to the odd seminar, but, you know, maybe they won't be reading journals and things. So it's also quite hard to keep numbers of su subscribers up. You know, in an ideal world, we'd have 10 times as many <laughs> as we do. But yeah. we get by, so, yeah. Now, I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about your writing because you've been a prolific writer. You mentioned the natural food store. So maybe we can go back to how that all came about. I, I, if I'm correct, it was you were in university at the time when this interest kind of came about. And you said, it seems like you did some pretty cool things in the natural food industry before it was really even a, an industry. Yeah. So um, I had a very short spell at university. I was thrown out. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was told I was the worst student ever to go to that university. So <laughs> uh, were, you, were you thrown out because of academics or is there a story behind this? Um, I think some of the story I probably will keep to myself. <laughs> oh, fine. All right. Nothing. No, I, you know, look, it was 1966. I was smoking weed. And um, at that time, that was a very much a, you know, shock horror thing. And I wasn't, st I mean, I really wasn't, I shouldn't have been there. I was not interested. I, you know, the world was changing fast, you know. Um, I was a proto-hippie. I wasn't excited by sitting in stuffy lecture rooms reading 16th century poetry. I would be now, you know, I'd love it now, but then, you know, I just wanted to, I wanted excitement. So I just wasn't interested. I got kicked out. I should have, you know, should have been grown up enough just to recognize and leave. I kind of made my, kind of made them throw me out. I went traveling for a couple of years and then I got sick. I got a very bad case of hepatitis. In fact, maybe a touch hysterically, I was in a tiny village in Morocco and I thought, actually, you know, I might die here. I really felt that sick. And very fortuitously, I didn't die. And I also, at that time, came across a book on um, was macrobiotics by George Osawa. I don't know if people know macrobiotics now, but it was a I think so. kind of Japanese-based, yin-yang-based um, dietary and philosophical system as far as diet was concerned it promised you could change your health and your you, you know your physical state and your mental state by balancing yin and yang and eating lots of simple natural foods so that was very much ahead of its time um i clung on to it like a, a drowning man to a, you know i thought this is going to get me well and i'd also i've been leading a pretty hedonistic life you know I was probably 20 21 by then I'd you know hadn't done anything serious in my life and I had been looking for something I'd felt you know I loved living wild and living on beaches and traveling with no money and everything but inside I was looking for something so this seemed like something I could really get into and um it's a long story I'm actually writing some memoirs at the moment so It'll all be, all the gory truth will be there. But anyway, 
suffice to say, to cut, cut the story short, with a bit of luck and meeting a guy that wanted to do the same thing as me, we, we opened a restaurant at actually at the university. I was thrown out of it. <laughs> that's, what, it that's what I was going to ask. I thought it was at a university. Hilarious. <laughs> uh, so we opened that and it went really well. It was fantastic because we sold really filling food, which is what students need very, very cheaply. And we were just a fun place mm -hmm. to be, you know. It was the place to be on the university, you know. And we did lots of festival catering. Um, that was fun, you know, going off. We went off to the to the first Glastonbury Festival and, you know, catered, sold brown rice and vegetables to the masses there, you know, 2,000 meals in a weekend. Wow. And... Um, did you have a, a food truck or...? No, we... we well, we had a truck, we took a marquee and cookers. And yeah. We just made everything up as we went along, you know. Yeah. Um, what we found in the restaurant, we, we found people knocking on the kitchen door, wanting to buy brown rice and muesli and whole wheat flour, because there really wasn't any way you could buy it, certainly not in, in decent-sized packages. So it seemed obvious then we'd have to open a shop. And we, we managed to scrape money f together from various people, various parents, and opened a tiny shop in the middle of nowhere in town, um, which it, that took a year or t over a year just to start getting customers because this was very new. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, if I was to say one thing about my career, I think I was. Um, I've been an early adopter. I've kind of seen the way the wind was blowing, recognized a good idea when I heard it. That's really what it is. I felt very passionate, really passionate. I still do about diet and nutrition. And um, it seemed very obvious to me what that, you know, if we want to be healthy ourselves, if we want healthy communities, if we want a healthy planet, a lot of it comes down to what we eat, how we eat, how we grow our food. So we were, you know, we were selling organic, really prioritizing organic food in already in 1973, 1974. And um, so after a few years of that, I um, I didn't want to be a shopkeeper anymore. I'm in the the buzz of of setting it up and all the fun and the community of it, that had been great, but, you know, I knew it was time to move on. And I went through a, a difficult period of realizing I had to stop doing what I was doing, but I didn't know what came next. That was quite, you know, that went on for several months, feeling lost again, really. And then um, I just woke up one day and it just, it was like a, switch went on in my head, acupuncture. Because macrobiotics had, had, you know, it wasn't just food. Um, they taught, you know, if you go into the macrobiotic seminar world, they taught bits of shiatsu and they taught, um, you know, some acupuncture points and some meridians and so on. So that, you know, I suddenly realized that was my next step. I, I uh, we gave the business away. We took, well, we turned 
we turned it into a co-op. It's a workers' co-op now. Uh, it's still going. Uh, so it's very, very successful. It distributes food all over the UK and some to Europe. It employs, I think it's 120, 130 people. But as a co-op, it's co-owned by everybody. So, you know, I'm really pleased that's still there and, you know, grew and thrived. Yeah. What's the name of it, Peter? It's called Infinity Foods. Mm -hmm. Is that what you named um, it back in the 70s? Yeah, we, we we went away for a weekend deliberately to try and find names. Yeah. We spent all weekend brainstorming names. The problem was there was this one name we kept coming back to that we liked called Infinity Foods. But we knew there was a store in America called oh. Infinity Foods. We kept going, no, no, we can't use that. You know. And then at the end of the weekend, we thought, we can't help it. That's our name. Yeah. So I don't know whether it's still an Infinity Foods in I don't the know. States. Fifth, is yeah. it 50 years almost? Um, yeah. It is. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Going on for Quite years, an accomplishment. Yeah. And so from that experience, you decided you wanted to study acupuncture. Now, at, at that time, I presume it wasn't quite as easy as it is today to find a place to study acupuncture. Is that correct? Well, I was lucky, I was lucky in that there was... Um, <clears throat> so basically, the, the story of British acupuncture is a small bunch of guys went to... Um, God, I, mean, I can't remember now, there was Hong Kong or Taiwan and did a very short course in acupuncture. Really short, I don't know how long it was, a few weeks. They came back to the UK, they started a started teaching and then they all fell out with each other. <laughs> so they all went off, three of them went off and set up three separate schools. One of them was J.R. Worsley who set up the five element school. Yeah. One of them was a guy called Van Buren who set up the school I went to that was quite close to, it was an hour's drive from where I live. So that was very convenient. And the other one with a medical background set up school for doctors. So I was lucky there was a school nearby. Uh, that was, it was really lucky. I didn't like the experience. I really didn't like the guy who ran the school mm. really didn't like him. It was a matter of endurance. I had to hold on to the, to the dream of being an acupuncturist, despite a million reservations about what I was being told and what I was being taught. And, you know, I, when, um, when Giovanni Machacha died, we held a, a memorial service for him in London. And I spoke, I actually wrote in the journal too. And what I said is that I really owe my career to Giovanni because I was on the point of giving up in despair when he appeared as uh, my teacher in the third year and he modeled everything that um, seemed right to me about the profession. He was knowledgeable, he was continually studying, he wasn't dogmatic, he was thoughtful, he read very widely English, French, a lot of material in France. Um, and so it was really because of him that I stuck with it and because of him, that was the first person I met who kind of modeled what I thought a Chinese medicine doctor 
could be like or should be like. Um, so that was that was that was really lucky. Yeah. So you studied at a school that, in the end, you really didn't enjoy it that much, other than your experience with Machiocha. Have you ever thought about what path you may have ended up on had you studied with J.R. Worsley at his school? It's never occurred to me. No. I don't think, really hard to say. I don't think I would have liked him. I mean, I am so grateful with that kind of path that I took, I was lucky enough to encounter, which is what I would call Chinese medicine. Um, people call it TCM, which I really don't like. Um, Chinese medicine is, you know, it's broad, it's vast. Academics say there is no such thing as Chinese medicine exactly, but it has common, it has common language. Um, so really with a good basis in uh, philosophy of Chinese medicine and theory of Chinese medicine, you can approach all of its branches, you know, from dietary medicine to um, medical qigong and qigong to herbal medicine, of course, to acupuncture. You can approach it all and basically share a language with um, what is being told, you know, what's being taught. You don't get that with five element acupuncture. I mean, five element you know, sort of teaches you to understand five elements. You can't make any significant um, study of Chinese herbal medicine through five element, through a basis in five element acupuncture. You just don't have the, the, the fundamental theory and, and so on. Um, so I'm grateful for myself. I know, you know, I, I really don't want to get into arguments and discussions about what what type of Chinese medicine or what type of acupuncture people should practice. I can only say for myself and my career, I'm immensely grateful that that's the, the path that was available to me. Well, and I, I would venture to say that you have, by choosing that path, you did a great service to the entire profession, especially of English speaking acupuncturist. And of course that's through your journal and through your books. And uh, yeah, can't can't thank you enough for the impact that you've had on on the industry through those. Before we get into the books, what direction did, did you go into once you finished with your schooling? Well, okay, so I I went into practice feeling desperately underqualified. You know, I I can't tell you the absurdities of what was going on at the time. I mean, the school I went to was very proud of the fact that students were not allowed to put a needle in all the time they studied. Oh, wow. So that's, that's you, interesting you approach. No, it's incredible. You qualified as an acupuncturist and you'd never put a needle in. Really? I mean, how absurd, absurd is that? Um, I started practicing in the uh, school clinic as well as trying to set up a private practice. It was probably the most challenging thing I've ever done. I mean, I just didn't know enough. You know, I wasn't, my education was, I'll be honest, I probably, you know, I probably studied harder and knew more than most of my peers, maybe because 
you know, sometimes when you really study, it's you realize more what, how much you don't know. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. you just take a superficial study, you think, oh, I know this. The more you study, the more kind of, <laughs> you know, you realize the vastness of it. Especially with and such was, an ancient tradition, too, as Chinese medicine. Hundreds, absolutely. thousands of years, yeah. And I was, you know, I felt desperately under skilled and wasn't really getting much help from the person who ran the, the school because his whole attitude and approach was so alien to me. Um, so I felt, um, yeah, it was, it was hard. I really had to hang on in there. Um, and then very luckily, I think it was probably a year or a bit, no, it was a couple of years after I had started practicing, Giovanni organized a trip to China. So this was the first time that qualified, or what we, what we called qualified acupuncturists, <laughs> went to study in China, that just for a very short time. China had only recently opened up, and they were teaching um, beginners, mostly from Africa, um, I can't remember, you know, one or two other places. They never had a bunch of acupuncturists come. So they made a big thing about it, you know. It was the first international advanced course of studies in acupuncture in Mount Sebastian. Um, we went at a strange time. There was a great deal of suspicion of um, foreigners. Couldn't, weren't allowed to speak to anybody in the street, you know. Um, it was still, you know, it was, it was well after the Cultural Revolution ended, but it was still very much that flavor. Um, but within the school and within the hospital, it was just fantastic. Uh, the, the, our teachers were such wonderful, wonderful people. And I felt like a sponge. Uh, I just soaked up information from the moment I woke to the moment I slept. And that was, it was three and a half months. It wasn't, you know, wasn't really very long, but I craved knowledge so much. I think I, I crammed a kind of year's learning or two years learning in, into that time. And that really launched my career because when we came back to the UK, um, we as a group, four of us as a group, Giovanni, myself, Julian Scott, I don't know if you know Julian there. I don't know him personally, but I know of his work, yeah. yes. And a woman called Vivian Brown, we started teaching one year postgraduate courses and yeah, just, you know, again, it was timing. Mm -hmm. You know, I was sort of without intending to, you know, at the, what you might call it, at the forefront yeah. of the profession in the UK. About what time, what year was this? Uh, we, the Chinese trip was the winter of 1981, 1982. Okay. Um, and then we started bringing Chinese doctors over to the UK to teach. That was in the mid eighties. So that was very much a new thing. Yeah. And at about the same time, we'll come back to this, but at about the same time through infinity foods, you were starting the Brighton natural health center. Is that correct? Yeah, it was pretty much the last thing I did in relation to infinity. So um, taking this idea, this vision, I know it sounds ideal, if you like, 
of um, you know, healthy individuals, healthy communities, and a healthy planet, I, I've said how important I think, well, I think it's pretty much universally agreed, diet and, the, and agriculture and the agricultural economy and its effect on the environment, how, that's one big package, so important. But, um, you know, the other area that we were interested in at the time was things that are just totally commonplace now, but were still pretty weird and wonderful then, things like yoga, um, tai chi, meditation, um, cooking, cooking classes. People weren't really into those. We saw this was also part of the same um, approach, you know, to healthy individuals, communities, and, and healthy planet. So we set up a charity called the Brighton Natural Health Centre to run classes and all these things and to try and, so partly commercial, you know, paid classes, but to try and have a strand always to offer low cost classes and over the years different funded community classes in usually in yoga and meditation. Um, and it's, you know, that's had its 40th birthday. It, of course, like, just like acupuncture clinics and like all other similar gyms and studios going through very challenging times at the moment, we are um, a couple of weeks away from reopening with all the provisos that any acupuncturist will be familiar with, you know, all the social distancing and hygiene procedures and everything, whether it will whether we'll be able to survive financially, we don't know. It's possible we won't um, because we have to have reduced number of classes. We've got to clean in between every class, reduced number of people within a class. What, ha what has been great, of course, is that we've pretty, pretty much as soon as we locked down, we closed the center, we instituted online teaching um, which has gone well. I've been teaching Qigong a couple of classes a week online. So that will continue and probably that's something acupuncturists can't do. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know we, can, we, can, we can hold live classes, but we can also Zoom them. Yeah. Um, and maybe that will help us keep our head above water. Well, based on your accomplishments over the last five decades and the longevity of the projects that you've started i i would venture to say that this one's gonna weather this rough time and and keep on impacting people you've it's and i don't use that word longevity lightly and and we'll come back around to that when we talk to some of talk about some of your writings because i know you focus some on longevity but you certainly have have lived it as as well as taught it i want to go back to china so we kind of covered that pretty quickly. I want to hear more about your experience there. Is there anything you can share about the time you spent there and how that impacted you? Um, I think as far as acupuncture is concerned, I'd say the thing that really impacted me was I was very, very lucky to end up with um, the doctor that I studied with, Dr. Xiao. And... He was, his needling 
I mean, I never seen anything like it when I went. You know, the 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 school that I studied in, the guy, his technique, his needle technique, was to take these tiny needles. You know, that was people say, oh, it's hair thin needles. I mean, these are almost thinner than a hair, and would barely pop them under the skin. They'd often fall out after a minute or two, and that was that was Akmaj. You'd also only treat people once every six weeks. That was the, the frequency. Mm-hmm. It was more like homeopathy, really. <laughs> you know, think, no, I'm serious. I think yeah. they took their model of practice because okay. they didn't really know. So that, they looked to, you know, I think Van Buren took it from homeopathy and Worsley took it from psychotherapy. Hmm. Those, those are the kind of models. I think they used. And there is actually so, there is actually the practice of homeopuncture. Are you familiar with that? that no, yeah. I'm not surprised. I mean, there's everything, isn't there? Yeah, I know. A doc, yeah. One of my mentors, Dr. Anton Jayasuriya in Sri Lanka, would, oh, yeah. would occasionally inject homeopathic remedies under the skin. Yeah. Wow. So he, I don't know if he created it, but he, it was dubbed homeopuncture. Anyway, back to your experience. Sorry. So there are two things really, it was all about the practice. He needled strong and deep. I mean, really deep. This is Dr. Shell. Yeah. Um, you know, those, uh, <laughs> they probably don't do them anymore, quite rightly, gender issues, but you know, you go to the circus and a woman would get in a box and the guy would start plunging swords yeah. into the box and you'd think, you'd think Where's the body? You know, how, how come this person isn't dead? It was a bit like watching that, you know. <laughs> I'd, see him, I'd see him plunge needles, you know, deep beneath the eyeball, you know, right into the depths of the eye socket. Or, um, you know, Yifeng Sanjiao 17, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, um, one and a half, two sun deep, just about. Wow. Um, but... And that sounds brutal, but the results, you know, what I saw happening in the clinic was so earth-shaking to me because I saw patients getting better right in front of my eyes, particularly if it was an acute problem. You know, and that time we had, you know, a fair number of acute patients. For example, we had, have you, have you studied in China? Yeah, I did. Did you get, so I don't know if they still have it, but... At that time, they used to use um, human waste as a fertilizer in the fields. And it's quite interesting. We, you know, we say in Chinese, don't eat raw foods because it's bad for the spleen. But there's another <laughs> very good reason. <laughs> really. And it's like, so, don't eat the yellow peasants, snow here in Canada. <laughs> so uh, peasants would, you know, they'd munch on a turnip and... Um, there's a disease, it's, it's, you, you get worms in the gallbladder. Hmm. Um, so, the worms, you, so the worms are in the gallbladder and then for some reason they decide to go for a little journey. So they travel out of the gallbladder into the bile duct and they have the same effect in the bile duct as a stone does. So it would, when you get a stone in the bile duct, you get kind of acute cholelithiasis. Um, it's said to be the most painful thing the human body can suffer, you know. 
possibly that and childbirth. Yeah. Who knows? Um, so we'd get patients coming in. I mean, these were tough. They were really tough people. Um, the, the acupuncture clinic was on the second floor. They'd be carried up on the back of their relatives, groaning and weeping with pain, which had been going on for like 36 hours maybe. They'd, be, they'd kind of be dumped on the clinic table and um, Dr. Shell would needle, put the first needle in, which was, um, do you know, it's a while, it was either stomach four to large intestine 20, or it must have been stomach four to large intestine 20. It's an empirical treatment, mm -hmm. thread needle. Mm -hmm. And he'd start manipulating it and he'd always say, the pain from the needle has to be greater than the pain from the gallbladder. So you really have to hurt them. Yeah. So he'd be plunging his needle, you know, and the patient, you know, would change from clasping their side in agony to kind of pointing at their face. Clasping their face. In, yeah. agony, <laughs> in agony. But I'd say almost without fail, 30 seconds later, they were asleep. It just absolutely wow. killed the plane. So thread, and, threading a needle from the corner of the mouth to the corner of the nose. Yeah, I don't know. Or you which, know, where the other came. direction, maybe. Do you remember which direction it was? I think I don't, but I think it would be it would be pretty difficult to do it the other way. Yeah, so it yeah. must have been from the mouth to the nose. So, um, I mean, I'm not saying that was you know we didn't get we had maybe three of those cases. I'm just giving an example. I mean, we had patients who could not, you know, I'm sure we're all familiar with it now, who just could not straighten up from acute back sprain, who walked out of the clinic completely free of pain. Mm -hmm. um, so. Obviously, in acute cases, you see the effects of this very powerful and dynamic treatment in front of your eyes. Yeah. And I just want to yeah. I just want to sit there for a second with the acute cases because I think it's quite common for people to think that acupuncture is really most effective with chronic cases. And yet, just as you're describing the results I have been able to gain and I've seen in treating acute cases with acupuncture is, is absolutely astounding. It's, it's it's astounding. Yeah. Um, I would say you know. It sounds rude. I think it's fair. Pra practitioners who don't think that acupuncture is effective for acute cases don't know how to treat them. Mm -hmm. Because really, generally speaking, for acute, certainly if it's acute pain, you need really strong treatment. I'd say you need you know, good, strong needle manipulation, the sensation has to be really strong to overcome the pain. Um, but the other thing I was going to say is that it wasn't just acute cases because the, the habit then in, in China was to treat every day. Yep. Um, possibly every other day, but often very every day. So you'd have people with severe chronic conditions who again would in slightly slower motion will get better in front of our eyes because over a period of two weeks three weeks four weeks they maybe had 20 or 30 treatments um, they were not afraid of repeating the same treatment they did it wasn't um 
crude, the treatment would adapt if the condition changed. They'd follow the changes in, in differentiation and diagnosis. Um, but fundamentally, the treatment principle was laid out until it needed to change, and it was simply followed, often with two prescription of points that alternated every day. And it was, it changed people, really changed them. Yeah. So I, that very much influenced how I practiced. Right. I used to teach to my students because of where I, when I learned in both Sri Lanka and China, it was also the same acupuncture treatments every day. And often patients here will ask, how often should I come? And so I used to teach my students that it's like climbing a descending escalator. You are at the bottom in a state of ill health. The top repre represents a state of health or equilibrium. And you need to consistently take step after step after step until you get to the top. You can do it. It's hard work, but you can get there. But if you stop halfway up, you're going to end up right back at the bottom again. That's actually a great image. I never heard that before. It's really helpful. Yeah, it just I must have come to me on an escalator one day. I'm not sure. But, <laughs> but it's... I think that was that was definitely ingrained in me that that pattern of treatment when I when I worked in Sri Lanka because sometimes we would have patients come twice a day even I don't necessarily recommend that but uh, they would certainly come every day that they could and and we would be treating some of the most chronic conditions some of the most ghastly acute conditions and ultimately we would see results. Well, I think, I think the conclusion of that is that we, you know, we, we work in the culture and society we work in and we have to adapt. It may not be possible for economic reasons or time reasons to treat every day or every other day. Uh, and we may have to accept that. But it's good to, I think the important thing is to, to know what, what the ideal is. Yeah. That we, that we are trying to get towards. Um, I think, you know, we've got the wrong image. I don't also say we've got the wrong image of acupuncture. I don't, I think acupuncture is incredibly wonderful, but it's not, um, it's not magic. And by that, I mean, if you think that there's a kind of magical tweak you can do to people with, the treatment given once a week or every two weeks, that's going to change everything. I'd say that's unlikely. Yeah. I think a lot of things need just very down to earth. And that also affects how we how value how valuable we think the price of acupuncture is. I mean, if you give acupuncture as in a down to earth way, it should it may not be possible, but ideally it should be cheap. And I I agree with that. And that's one of the reasons I've always been such a proponent of community style acupuncture. And when I studied in Sri Lanka, even as a student, I would be treating 20 or 30 patients in a, in a few hour period. And so when I started Pacific Rim College, right from the very beginning, we had community acupuncture classes and clinics. And it was actually very challenging for me to adapt to treating in, <clears throat> in the Western culture setting one patient at a time charging 60 to $120 a treatment because 
most of my education had been in free community acupuncture clinics. And that's where I was seeing results. And it was a, a very difficult transition for me. And I would ultimately say that was uh, part of what limited my my career as a practitioner in acupuncture. I really resonated more with the community acupuncture style and and just wanted to continue doing that more so than private one-on-one sessions. But as you said, a well, lot of it for financial reasons to be able to help the clients truly reach their ultimate goals yeah. of health. So, I mean, also, you know, um, it's cheaper. Community community practice can can um, make acupuncture more affordable. <clears throat> There's also an enormous potential benefit from community engagement. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, we kind of think that privacy privacy is the ultimate. We never want to um, speak about our medical problems in front of other people, and so that's seen seen as a limitation um, or a risk in community clinics. <laughs> in China, you know, it was really hilarious. I, I loved being in the clinic because it was such good fun. I mean, um, you'd get. You know, a patient would be interviewed. You get a new patient come in. So they get, you know, a 10-minute, that was the longest they gave, really, 10-minute um, diagnostic interview. But patients waiting for their treatment and patients on couches receiving treatment would be listening. And they would they would interrupt. <laughs> they kind of, you know, the, the, you know the, the poor patient would be going, oh, you know, my bowels are so painful and so, you know, and somebody would <laughs> speak out and go, you know, you listen to the doctor. I had that and he treated me and I'm so much better. You know, you do what he says. It was, I mean, I know that's a different culture, but there's a lot of potential energy, I think, um, to be tapped into. And, and I, I um, sorry, yeah. I always valued the, the, opportunity to use a greater degree of intuition in my treatment because when doing community acupuncture and as you said 10 minutes is kind of the max intake some cases it's five minutes or less there is an intuitive component that i found i had to rely on to be able to choose fewer needles fewer points and have them be as impactful with having not done an hour intake for example yeah well obviously there's two you know i can hear people's objections in my head there's one which is that some people need time yes you know, they really need to be able to talk so you know one's ideal community clinic would also have space to with particular patients or maybe every patient once in a while to spend you know a greater time amount of time talking to them the second thing that I'm very interested in is lifestyle education. And I think community clinics potentially are. So, all right, let's, let's kind of just maybe broaden it out for a moment. Um, it may be something that you're going to come to, but I came to, to visit you, as you say, about a decade ago to talk about um, Yangshan lifestyle, Chinese traditional Chinese view of how to live in order to promote health, well-being, 
the longevity and that um, interest, that growing interest of mine led me to write a book called Live Well, Live Long, teachings from the Chinese nourishment of life tradition. And I feel very strongly that when we study Chinese medicine, we encounter something that is from its historical origins, as much devoted to health maintenance and disease prevention as it is to treatment. So it's a common place that we say, or oh, the Yellow Emperor's Classic is the Bible of Chinese medicine. You know, Emperor's, uh, Yellow Emperor's Classic starts on page one, the very first thing it opens with. Why is it that nowadays people are not as healthy and don't live as long as they used to? And remember, this is written around 2000 years ago. And the answer is, well, it's lifestyle. They drink too much, <clears throat> you know, eat and drink recklessly and so on. And then on, you know, chapter two is that very famous statement, you know, don't, um, we shouldn't intervene. Well, it's, it's best if we don't have to intervene once the disease has arisen. It's best to intervene before the disease arises. You know, and they say it's like, it's like waiting to start digging a well when you're already dying of thirst or forging weapons and the battle's raging all around you. So th that could be interpreted, I wouldn't interpret it as this, but it could be interpreted that the doctor treats the patient, you know, needles them, whatever, at the change of season to keep them healthy. I don't think that's the, the true meaning of it. The true meaning is that we, the Chinese medicine doctors, repository of two and a half thousand years of knowledge about how to live in such a way as to offer the greatest chance of not developing chronic disease and being resistant to acute disease. And that is Yang Sheng, probably the foundation of Chinese medicine. So um, we know a lot when we study Chinese medicine, we learn a lot about diet and nutrition. Uh, we learn a lot about the right kind of exercise. We learn an awful lot about the harmful effect of unbridled emotions and the, the fact that a harmonious emotional life has beneficial effects on, on our physical health. And we learn, so we learn, you know, we learn about sleep and we learn about sex. That's part of our medicine. Western doctors don't learn that. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that um, apart from the problem we face at the moment, which is an acute disease, COVID-19, and remember that these, these epidemics, these infectious diseases, were probably the most important diseases in the at the time the Yellow Emperor was written. So staying healthy also meant building a strong immune system. That's what it meant. Um, what, apart from this acute disease, what we face in the world is the ever-growing um, spread of chronic non-infectious disease. So the four or five main um, chronic diseases, diabetes, cancer, uh, strokes, dementia, and probably if we add um, depression, 
these are all increasing everywhere in the world. You know, and if you look at the rate of increase, uh, it's terrifying. If you're if you're a if you sit in government, you sit in the health department of any government, and you look at the predictions, you know, all of them are pretty much expected to double in the next 20 or 30 years. Talk about doubling of the number of people with dementia. I mean, that is a, you know, apart from the personal cost, that's a horrendous economic cost for society to bear, especially an aging society with ever lower birth rates. That means there's fewer and fewer young, younger people to look after everybody. So um, these are not really diseases that medicine can treat. Um, it can mitigate them, and, and that includes Chinese medicine. I mean, if you get cancer, Chinese medicine can help, but it's pretty unlikely Chinese medicine will cure cancer or cure um, severe chronic heart disease or cure dementia. Medicine can't cure them, can mitigate them. So the only really sensible, logical, grown-up perspective is we want to prevent these diseases. We know they're preventable. These are all fundamentally lifestyle diseases. We know that because when our modern lifestyles spread to countries with low rates of chronic diseases, um, when modern junk food diets turn up there and life changes the people, move their bodies less, we can see the rate of these chronic diseases just starts to shoot up. So we know they're preventable. Um, and we know we have to, you know, we have to try and find ways to have healthier populations. So what I'm really coming back to is we should be, our Chinese medicine profession should be at the forefront of that. Because we know this, we know the stuff. We're not moved by every passing fad. You know, they may be great, there may be suddenly a new exercise fad that is brilliant, or a new dietary fad that's brilliant. But you know, they they do tend to come and go, and come into fashion and go out of fashion. We we hold information that has been developed and tested and passed on for century after century. Could really say the smartest doctors in Chinese medicine, all the great doctors, also um, practiced and taught lifestyle medicine. So we should be at the forefront of this, what we would hope is the next step in medicine, which is lifestyle medicine. And coming back to long-winded detour, coming back to community clinics, how wonderful it would be if these community clinics could also be healthy lifestyle hubs where we offer classes and education, a bit like the Brighton Natural Health Center. You know, the extraordinary thing is quite small interventions have a massive effect. There was um, a TV program that aired in Britain a couple of years ago that took a, a regular GP's surgery with its regular high number of diabetic patients, all on medication, of course, and they just started a walking project. So they, they went on a lead walk every morning, 20 minutes, half an hour walk, 
And after a month, the results were stupendous. They were 10 times greater than anything that medicine could achieve. You know, people were healthier, they reduced their medication, um, they felt better in themselves, they felt more positive about their lives. These are quite simple interventions. So, you know, that would be great if, you know, yeah. it's very easy for me to sit here imagining what would be great. I don't have to do it, but it would be great. When I did some of my studies in Sri Lanka under Dr. Jayasuriya, who it was a, a, a great man with many faults, but he, he certainly took advantage of his, his greater assets and, and his clinical setup, which was all community acupuncture, he would have three lectures a day. And that was while we were treating patients. And often the lectures included the patients. He would do case studies, case histories of patients who had come in or, or talk about a patient's grandmother who had, he'd treated 25 years ago. And he would, all, some of the patients would, would literally come and stay for four hours at a time to hear the lectures and also get treated and to be in that community setting where they could, they could, they could meet with their neighbors or people who live across town who they normally don't get to see. And it was an incredible environment. Yeah. And he also had a great gift with humor. And sometimes his lectures would be 30 to 45 minutes of joke telling. And <laughs> it was, right. I love that. it was just absolutely wonderful to sit there and, and literally be sore in the gut from laughing and looking around the room with 50 to a hundred patients, all who have needles in them. And some of them have tears coming out of their eyes because we're all laughing so hard. There's so much healing in that. Well, we all starve for community, don't we? Yeah. I think in, in modern times. Uh, just, just in that vein, I do want to mention um, that I'm, I'm working with um, four, four other people on an app for practitioners. So it's actually a lifestyle app. What we recognize is that... Um, there may be quite a lot of information that practitioners want to give to their patients about particular um, approaches to diet, to um, mind calming practices like meditation, like Qigong and so on. Um, it's it's uh, often time challenge. And also, you know, you can tell patients things, you can demonstrate simple acupressure or qigong moves but then they go away and forget it so what we're developing is an app that has so the practitioner version of the app has a whole host of videos divided into diet um, self-massage acupressure qigong and meditation tailored for different problems of so the qigong i've been filming the qigong you know kind of qigong qigong exercises for the five different exercises to help with shoulder problems you know four for the back this kind of thing you know um and then the patient will be able to get a free version of the app and the practitioner prescribes which of the library of, of videos they want the patient to to follow you know i want you to um you know my diagnosis is yin deficiency. So here's some dietary guidelines to follow for yin deficiency. And because you have yin deficiency, I want you to 
meditate and do this calming qigong and then of course a different patient will get a different batch of videos so we're stuck into that at the moment you know it's nearing completion it'd be interesting to see whether that takes off or not it sounds like a brilliant idea good for you on yeah. doing that how's that experience been in creating the app um well it ties in i've been doing i've been doing a lot of qigong filming recently apart from the zoom classes because i created um a 10-hour qigong course uh which i had to film so i've had a lot of <laughs> spent a lot of time i don't know if you've ever done any filming but well, we, through our uh, online college, Pacific Room College Online, oftentimes our farm becomes the, the hub of the filming. So, yeah, we've had many film crews here. Yes. Well, I, I did my course on my own, so, because it was in lockdown. So oh, wow. I can't, I can't tell you what it was like. You know, I had to learn. I had to learn lighting, cameras, focus, sound, editing, and it probably took me five times longer. I'd, you know, sometimes I'd feel like a wonderful half hour. And then I look back and I realize the, uh, the fake window blind I had to correct behind me had flopped down. I mean, oh, no. that kind of thing happened all the time. <laughs> or, or I'd forgotten to switch the sound on. You know. <laughs> so, so, it was a, so, yeah. Let's... Yeah, uh... I want to, I do want to talk more about your writing. You, you spoke of Live Well, Live Long, which is a book on Yangsheng. What is Yangsheng? Well, it means the nourishment of life. So it's really, I mean, there's a lot of esoteric stuff in Yangsheng. I try to keep it down to earth, draw from, um, you know, the wisdom the incredible wisdom of the Chinese tradition. I mean, it's absolutely phenomenal, especially when, as I did in my book, I did a lot of research, on, a lot of study of modern lifestyle research. You know, the latest thinking and in the value of exercise and the effects of exercise and approaches to diet. And you realize most of it was known, um, well, close to two and a half thousand years ago. I mean, I'm reading a lot. I'm thinking of writing a book on Qigong. I'm, I'm reading a lot of modern books on movement. And there's a big trend now in, um, in movement studies to get away from exercise, which sounds weird. But, you know, this idea that exercise in the way that we envisage it, which is going to a gym or going running, for example, is has come about because we don't basically move our bodies in our life, in our normal life. It, I'm trying to just, you know, uh, find better words to explain it. It's a kind of, um, it's a substitute. And what we, re what we know from Chinese, I mean, Sun Tzu Miao said, you know, the art of staying healthy is to um, constantly move the body. Yeah? Too much sitting harms uh, the chi. Too much lying down harms the flesh. On the other hand, we shouldn't take exercise to extremes, shouldn't exhaust ourselves and wear out the body. We should learn from water that is constantly flowing. 
So this is very much a trend, I think, in modern movement studies that we want to move the body as much as possible through the day, and we want to move it in complex ways. Yeah? Uh, certainly some types of exercise, like some gym exercises, they almost deliberately restrain the complexity of movement. You select a single muscle or a group of muscles and you kind of train the hell out of them. Whereas what the natural way of moving the body that comes from our ancestors is to twist and turn, you know, is to move the body in the way that you do when you're climbing a tree to get to a, to a, to a, a bees, you know, to get, get the honey or, um, you know, moving it as you would when you're kind of plunging through the water to catch a fish or you're pounding grain. This is the trend, I think, the coming trend in, in movement. And, and so you get these, the, this was known such a long time ago. Um, same way with, with diet, for example. You know, every Chinese person knows, they know it so well, they probably don't even listen to it. You know, stop eating when you're 70% full, it's Chinese saying. You know? So we now know you get these modern, there's the 5-2 diet and there's different approaches to fasting. The traditional Yangsheng way is just never eat till you're full. So we know now because of studies that every single animal species that's tried on has less disease and lives longer. So um, what was really interesting for me was to take the ideas of Yangsheng, the nourishment of life, the teachings, and present them in a way that is simple and straightforward and not esoteric and demonstrate from uh, a lot of lifestyle research how spot on they are. Yeah, and as you said, coming from 2000, 2,500 years ago, there's so much to be learned from these traditions. And, and really Chinese medicine, uh, we often speak of it in our teaching, it is a holistic system of medicine. It, it looks at the whole body and through it we can apply principles of prevention through nutrition and movement and meditation and then we also have the treatment strategies of acupuncture and herbs for treating more acute conditions or or uh, difficult chronic conditions and i just wanted to say that your book live well live long is such a, a great compendium of those therapies and it's it's a great gift for for students and practitioners alike thanks just going back a bit that is one of the you know that's an issue to tackle if one does move to community clinics because we have, you know, the other great thing about the unique thing about Chinese medicine, one of its many wonderful unique things is through our diagnostic system, our differentiation of patterns, we can actually tailor lifestyle advice to the patient. It's not just here's a whole load of information about a healthy diet. You know, we can home in and say, well, you know, you have damp heat. Yeah. Therefore, because you have damp heat, what is an appropriate diet for you is such and such and such and such, and to avoid such and such, that's really crucial. It is, and in the West, yeah. it's such a 
such a sad area to see that when people get a diagnosis, quote unquote, they're put into a box, a very rigid, isolated box, and all the treatment strategies must fit within that box for everyone across the spectrum who has been diagnosed with the same diagnosis, whether it's osteoporosis or lung cancer or hepatitis, whatever it is, there's, there's no consideration of the actual individual and their patterns of symptoms and their lifestyles. And that's what Chinese medicine does so well. We can have 10 different people with the same exact Western diagnosis. And in Chinese medicine, they get completely different diagnoses and therefore completely different treatment principles and strategies. And, and lifestyle advice. <clears throat> I spent most of last year editing a textbook on um, infertility. The principal author was this wonderful Chinese doctor in Beijing who's, she's one of the most remarkable women I've, I've met because she's, she's absolutely brilliant. She's very, 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 she, she trained in Western medicine and Western medicine gynecology and, and then became an infertility specialist. So her knowledge of pretty, pretty much cutting edge Western medicine um, infertility diagnosis and treatment is top notch. But she's also a fantastic Chinese medicine doctor, really brilliant. So all she all she treats is is infertility. Um, and we published it just at the end of last year, I think, January, beginning of this year. Anyway, a couple of years ago, I interviewed her for an article for the journal. At the time, no, for various reasons, I wanted to emphasize the value of lifestyle advice because some people in the acupuncture world were suggesting that this was unnecessary. I don't, I don't want to go into that, but anyway, so I pretty much at the end, I said, you know, you're, let me ask you, you know, where, as well as, you know, you have patients coming to you for um, infertility, you make your diagnosis. She often prescribes Western medicine alongside brilliant Chinese herbal medicine prescriptions. I say, do you give them lifestyle advice? And she, she's, she's in her 70s, but she's a fierce woman. And she raised her hand and slapped it down hard on the table and went, of course, of course, you cannot treat without that. You know, you cannot, you know, if you have a, you have a young woman in her, you know, early 30s who can't get pregnant and she's got a really demanding job which leads a really exhausting lifestyle you have to say to her you have to say you will not get pregnant unless you know unless you do what i say i mean that's chinese style no yeah. subtlety there <laughs> you know or you know a patient with pelvic inflammatory disease you know you have to change your diet you have to it's not a question of you know, if you want to get better, you must do this. Yeah. So it's such an important part of the medicine. It is, and our culture is so much the opposite of that. We're looking for that magic pill that's going to alleviate all the symptoms and not require any work or change from us. And yep. being healthy, it takes dedication and commitment. And uh, it's sad for me when I think about how many people probably don't experience vitality at any point in their lives other than when they're infants 
and it's it really or drunk. <laughs> I guess another version of vitality. Yeah. <laughs> but it is it's it's hard work and at the same time it is the most rewarding work that can be done putting putting effort and dedication into our own health you're um the book that certainly is you're probably most widely known for i want to talk a bit about the manual of acupuncture and the collaborative effort that was and it's interesting because i realize you had two co-authors on that book and yet for the 20 years that i've known the book and I've been teaching, it's just always been referred to as the Deadman. And it, <laughs> it doesn't go by the title, the manual of acupuncture. It's just known as the Deadman. Yeah. Which is strange because when we, when we came up with the title, it, it would partly, we hoped it would become a textbook. We hope, you know, remember from school, you know, your school textbooks, they have a short name and we always hoped it would be called the manual, you know, get out the manual or look right. it up. In the manual so it's a bit of a surprise to me especially having such an odd name <laughs> um but i'm gonna say i mean this was a real i i've loved doing things with other people i mean i started the natural food business with a colleague um uh, nearly everything i do is collaborative and the manual was collaborative and it, it was unthinkable that it, you know, it could never have been done without uh, my friend Marzen Akafaji and without um, the late Kevin Baker, you know, who unfortunately died about two years ago. Um, and that was wonderful. But if I'm being honest, it is fair that it's called Deadman <laughs> because, you know, I, it was really my project. Right. So it was a combination. I mean, it's strange to, to try and describe um, how, how it happened because, for example, Mazen did all the translation from Chinese. I don't write or speak Chinese. So he translated the raw material, including, so, you know, he had to improve his classical Chinese to form the kind of database that we drew from in writing the book. And Kevin Baker, who was quite an extraordinary guy who um, were trained in emergency medicine, um, trained as a surgeon, then trained as a GP, then trained as an acupuncturist, and finally trained as a psychotherapist. <laughs> who wow. He and I, yeah, exactly. Um, he was the anatomy boss you know the he and i worked on the point locations and the illustrations and everything so it was absolutely a collaborative project but but fundamentally books have to be there's a lot of things that go into books to create books you know yeah um, yeah so. it is such a beautiful work and did you ever expect the impact and popularity that it has achieved when you are working on it? Absolutely not. You know, I, I would say it took us eight years. I don't think, I don't remember at any point during that eight years, <clears throat> did we ever think it might make any money, 
for example, we never talked about money. Really? Only to the extent that just when it was close to publication, we had to, you know, we had to look at it and work out how people would be rewarded if it did make money. We never really thought about it. It was, it was just something we wanted to do. And then um, once you start, it's been like having a baby. <laughs> you, are, you just have to carry on. <laughs> You know, yeah. So you, know, you basically you haven't got any choice. And you know, just carry one step in front of another. To... And I'm, I, I want to know a bit about the genesis of it because I recently interviewed Lonnie Jarrett, and he talked about the the self publication of her his first book, Nourishing Destiny, and the work that went into that. You you created it. Now I guess I've only seen the version since about two thousand, but it's a beautiful textbook you've put so much care and time into not just the writing of it but the actual publication of it in the format that it is in is was that what the very first edition was like what we're seeing today is has there been much change not a lot no not a lot i mean really it's just the addition of um a bit of color yeah we added added um terracotta color to it when when the book was being put together, the idea I had was I, I we were excited about the content. You know, we were sometimes when we were writing together, Marzen and I, or I was writing the sort of lot the introductory chapters. I thought, you know, I got very excited. I felt this is, I felt this is great, you know, we, we are doing something great. Um, and so then what I felt is that I wanted every part of the book to, to be at the same level. You know, I wouldn't, wouldn't be happy with the book where we felt the words were great, but the design of the book was rubbish and, you know, it wasn't attractive. So we put, um, a lot of time into really a lot of time into the other contents. The illustrations took, I mean, it took me probably, you know, work with with Kevin Baker on them. But then I probably, you know, I put two years work into them. You did uh, them by hand. No, no, we we commissioned okay. fifty basic illustrations. Wow! But then there had to be there had to have all this content put on top for all the different individual of points. Course. Yeah. But that's what I was doing. I don't when I say two years, I don't mean full time, but in all right. my yeah. spare time, for example. Um, then a, a friend of my daughter's, a young guy, very smart guy, spent a summer working next to me and he was putting the pages together, laying out the book. And we had, for example, we had a principle that we would do everything we could to have the point location description on the same page as the illustration. So you didn't have to read it, turn over, turn back, read it. That's a little thing and probably nobody ever using the book would ever consciously realize that, but it adds to the, the enjoyment of using the book. You kind of use it and some things are slipping under the radar, but from feedback, they contribute to people feeling good about the, about using the book. It's an 
if you understand what I mean. So I, I do. And it's every, every detail that you put into it shows it's, it, it just is a remarkable piece of art, uh, alongside. I had a dear friend value. who was, I had a dear friend also deceased, unfortunately, who was passionate about typography <laughs> and would, you know, he'd beat me up. <laughs> he'd kind of, I'd show him something and I was putting, you know, putting the book together and you go, why, why are you using semicolon? <laughs> tell me, what, tell me, what is the point? What do you think that semicolon is there for? <laughs> I love that. You know, I go, well, I'm sorry. I realize it isn't. He said, take them out. You know, so he was very, <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, it's for nerds. You know, I'm a bit of a nerd, a bit of a, a um, perfectionist. Yeah. So I love that <laughs> style. A uh, couple more things. I know we're we're running uh, on in time here, Peter. I just had a few more things for you. When you were here last, we I know you have a, a great passion for the outdoors. You wanted to go see some of the BC wilderness. I remember we were hiking, and I was uh, I had my two year old daughter, and at one point she was walking behind you, and she tripped and fell, and she landed on the heel of your shoe. And I remember that the uh, the imprint of the brand of your shoe landed right on her forehead. She had this big red mark from your from your shoe brand. I did not take her. I promise. I thought that was yeah. I thought that was great to be branded by Peter Deadman. Uh, but the reason I bring that up is because I know that your passion for forestry has led you into creating or co-creating the Eco Forestry Trust. Can you talk a bit about what that is and what that means to you? Yeah. Just incidentally, I, one of the distinct memories of that walk was probably an everyday occurrence for you. For, for me, seeing an eagle, I'm not sure if it was a sea eagle or a bald eagle, it's a bald eagle. swoop down and catch a fish. Yeah, it did, didn't it? And yeah, that's kind of, maybe you see that every day, but to me, that was memorable. You know? Yeah, it, it does happen a lot here, but yeah, that was pretty great to be able to see that. Do I recall correctly that someone was hand feeding? He was just holding out fish and it swooped down? No, must have been a different time. Was, yep. um, yeah, it's actually called the Chinese Medicine Forestry Trust. So I think like anybody who's paying attention, that's hopefully all of us, um, particularly uh, this this COVID crisis has kind of come along and not taken up all the oxygen, really. But until it came along, the one of the biggest issues that we all became aware we're faced with is environmental degradation, the threat to the planet, um, the biggest challenge human beings have ever faced, um, something to make us wake up at night in a cold sweat, especially if we've got children and grandchildren, you know, um, the terrible, you know, the, the appalling destruction of the natural world, which is, which, which, you know, also causes, causes us, if we pay attention, so much grief. I mean, when you, when you realize that species that have evolved in their own beautiful way to occupy a particular environmental niche, you know, have evolved over hundreds of thousands of millions of years are just kind of thoughtlessly wiped out. Um, it's terribly, terribly sad. So the big problem when we face 
these kind of things is how to respond. Uh, it seems so ho hopeless and it seems so vast. So um, Bob Dylan sang a line, you do what you must do and you do it well. I, I have a number of favorite Bob Dylan lines for different circumstances. So I think the main thing, you know, <clears throat> is to turn feeling impotent <clears throat> and to turn feelings of despair, if you like, into positive action. So we just all pick something that we feel strongly about and, and try and make it happen. And for me, it was trees. Trees fit, tick many boxes for me. Um, they have a, a, an immediate impact on our, we know from lots of research now, they've got a great impact on human um, psychological well-being. They lock up carbon, they counter flooding, they provide a home and food for countless species, they provide medicine. There are a lot, so many Chinese medicines derived from trees. So um, with a group of local acupuncturist friends, we set up what we call the Chinese Medicine Forestry Trust. And the aim was and is that this is our profession's charity. Um, we have been trying to get people to contribute to it, money, uh, practitioners, businesses, schools, colleges, anybody. Um, and then we just act to funnel the money, all the money we receive, we funnel it currently into three organizations that plant trees and protect forests. There's the World Land Trust, um, Tree Nation, and the Woodland Trust. Um, so we've done that. We have not raised, to be honest, the amount of money we hope to raise. We've probably raised close to getting off 10,000 US dollars so far, which we've put into these funds. I, I'll be honest, I thought the response would be much more immediate uh, than it has been, and much more great, but um, we're kind of laying low a bit until the current coronavirus situation changes, because I think that's very much at the forefront of people's minds. And of course, practitioners don't have much spare money at the moment, but as soon as the time is right, we'll be growing our um, promotional activity again, waving the flag and trying to encourage everybody just, you know, to make a small regular donation. I mean, if you plant, if you, if you give $10 a month, um, a lot of this tree plant, a lot of the tree planting organizations work in developing countries where planting and looking after trees is very cheap. In the UK, it costs about $15 a tree. In um, Vietnam or Ethiopia, it's about a dollar a tree. So if you, you know, if people donate $10 a month, you can go to bed every night thinking, I planted 10 trees this month. What magical things trees are. What wonderful beasts. So, you know, that's what we want to appeal to. Yeah. Well, that's a great initiative. I'll certainly put the links in the show notes so people that can contribute to that if they feel called to do it. Thank you so much for your, your time today. I was hoping we could talk a bit about your music, but I realize we've been chatting a while. I do encourage people to go to your website to listen to some of your music. It's, it's really great to hear. 
Uh, you're a multi-talented man. And as you've said, you've, you've kind of been ahead of the curve in so many areas. And I thank you for all of your contributions to the, the field of Chinese medicine at the very least and, and for your contributions to the environment. And it's uh, certainly been a pleasure to sit down and chat with you today, Peter. Where can people learn more about you if they want to seek you out or seek out your work? Um, well, the best thing, the best thing is I've got a, a website called peterdedman.co.uk. So that's kind of got links to the different things <clears throat> I'm involved in or I've been involved in. Yeah. All right. And I want to thank you for being a generous host. You were a generous host to me in Canada when I came over and you've been very generous today, giving me the opportunity to talk, which I kind of, I like talking. So it was a good combination been, then. Yeah. Well, I, it's been a great, great experience chatting with you again. And hopefully the listeners will agree with that. Thanks Todd. So thank you, Peter. Hopefully we can meet again sometime and I wish you all the best with your projects. And same to you. Thank you. Yep. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with the ever pioneering Peter Dedman. If you want to learn more about all of Peter's work, visit his website, peterdedman.co.uk. Both of his textbooks on Chinese medicine are available at the Pacific Rim College Bookstore. If you are interested in studying acupuncture and Chinese medicine or holistic nutrition, check out our incredible on-site and online learning opportunities at pacificrimcollege.com. Because of the current pandemic, all of our programs in these two areas have online study options for the fall 2020 semester, including our holistic nutrition certificate, which for the first time ever is entirely online and taught virtually live by our incredible faculty members. And for self-paced online learning in these subject areas and more, go to PacificRimCollege.online. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you're using. Thanks for tuning in. Your mission until next time, find a practice that nourishes your life.